0: Welcome to the Exponential Podcast. My name is Peyton Jones and as Exponential's content director, I'll be your guide to the curation of the world's largest multiplication library of resources and training. We currently have four shows running Monday through Thursday, each with a different thrust towards accelerating multiplication. On Monday, join us for Frontlines, tackling current issues facing pastors and planners. On Tuesday, tune in for Biblically Speaking, theological foundations for transformative race conversations. On Wednesdays, Ralph Moorhead's Practical Multiplication, A Pastor's Guide to Accelerating Multiplication, and lastly, Candid Conversations is on Thursday, Unpacking Definitions of Diversity. Be sure to catch them all as they will serve as equipping companions on your discipleship journey towards multiplication. Today, we'll be catching up with Todd Wilson and Ephraim Smith on Candid Conversations. The Candid Conversation Show is intended to help leaders engage in conversations about diversity in a healthy way. Each show focuses on a topic and helps participants unpack what that topic is, why it's divisive, and what can be done to promote both change and unity. Let's join Todd and his co-host for today's episode of Candid Conversations.
1: What do you think about when you hear racism? Usually when you hear racism, you think about what one person does to another person. In other words, if I mistreat my students because they're white, that's racist. If I don't get a job because I'm black, that's racist. And that is racist. But racism can be multifaceted. It's not just what one thi- person does to another. I want to talk to you about systematic bias or institutional bias. I want to talk to you about that uh just to help us understand that the way racism manifests, manifests itself in our society can vary can differ now let me give a really easy example most of us know about jim crow laws those were laws that separated blacks and whites in the south so you had black only restrooms white only restrooms black only water fountains white only water fountains when you went to a restaurant if you are an african american Oftentimes, you could not eat in the restaurant or you, you, or you had to sit in a place away from everyone else. Jim Crow. Now, we all recognize that's racist, right? But is it personal racism? Are individuals engaging in racism because they hate African Americans? Not necessarily. If you're a waiter or a waitress in a restaurant that has this sort of Jim Crow separation, your personal Desires, racial desires, don't matter. You're participating in a system that is racist, and therefore it hurts people of color. In this case, African Americans. Now, we don't. We have laws against Jim Crow today. Do, is this an issue today? And yeah, we have evidence that this is an issue today. For example, look at our criminal justice system. Research has shown that African Americans and Hispanic Americans. Are more likely, with all everything being equal, are more likely to be ar- arrested, more likely to be charged, more likely to be put on trial, more likely to be found guilty, and if found guilty, serve longer sentences than people than, than white. And that's controlling everything. There are aspects of our criminal justice system that work against African Americans and Hispanic Americans. And it doesn't matter exactly whether or not the people in them are racist. Well, here's just one example of that. Powder versus crack cocaine. Now, the disparities in punishment of powder versus crack cocaine has gone down, but it's still there. If you use crack, the same amount, by the way, as powder cocaine, you will serve a harsher sentence. right. on the surface, it seems like, okay, well, you know, that's just... That's just punishment, that's just the law. For whatever reason, African Americans use crack cocaine much more than European Americans who tend to use powder cocaine. So that law, which on the surface is not racist, has a racial impact, what we call a disparate impact on African Americans. And so when we look at why they may be serving more longer sentences, Part of it is that rules or or laws or systems like this, just like Jim Crow, even though Jim Crow was intentional of being racist, this may not be intentional of being racist. And yet African-Americans serve longer sentences nonetheless. So this is how racism can be in our system. And once again, it's not about whether or not you yourself are personally racist. All right. So we got to drop this oh, I'm not racist, therefore it's not a problem. It's a problem if you're getting a different sentence, even though you're doing basically the same thing. Now, let's look at this historically, because here we can see how such systems develop. And here I want to look at a classic example, and that's residential segregation. I bet in the city you live in, you know where the black section is and the Hispanic section, if you have enough blacks and Hispanics in your city, and the white section of town. That's what we mean by residential segregation, the fact that people of different races tend to live in different sections of the city. That did not happen by accident. Historically, for example, we know that African Americans were forced to live in their own areas, often called ghettos. Hispanic Americans were forced to live in barrios. Native Americans were forced on reservations. So we know this is not an accident that we have this sort of segregation. We know that there are laws enforcing it. We know there are customs enforcing it. We know there's mortgage loan guarantee programs that forbid you getting that mortgage loan guarantee integrate a great neighborhood. We know there was violence. We know that there were there were white supremacist groups that reinforce segregation. So that if you are a person of color and you move to the wrong area of town, you might have a crossbar on your yard. Okay, so we have we had all that. We don't have that today. But because of what happened there, we've created this sort of segregated neighborhoods that persist over time. And what has also happened is that we now have a sort of norms or values where we reinforce this. So research shows that if people of color, if African Americans move into a neighborhood in sufficient enough numbers, whites will begin to move out. And they've interviewed whites and 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 that you know and they've seen that they are uncomfortable with too many African Americans and to some degree, Hispanic Americans in their neighborhoods. So we've reinforced what's happened historically. Now, you can fairly ask, why does it all matter? Maybe it's just preference. You know, people prefer to live close to those of their own race and and what's so so bad about that? Well, there's a lot of costs attached to this residential segregation. One example, home prices. I have a home, I've bought a home. I hope my home goes up in value over time so that when I sell the home, I make some money. If I want to get a loan, it's nice to have a valuable home. We know that in neighborhoods that are mostly black and Hispanic, that the home values do not appreciate nearly as much as others. And it makes perfect sense. If whites who tend to have more income than others are unwilling to purchase homes, then we have the problem of supply and demand, don't we? So you have fewer people wanting to purchase a home, it doesn't go up in value, and thus the value we get from the homes does not increase. Here's another cost: redlining. Now, redlining is when financial institutions basically draw a red line around different areas of the city and then treat them differently. Perhaps they are less willing to, fund, to loan them money, perhaps they're less; they give them higher interest rates, Sometimes because they figure that the people in this area of the city, that they don't have the resources to pay them back. Okay. Now, redlining would not matter racially. It may matter economically, but not racially if we didn't have residential segregation. If whites and blacks and Hispanics and Asians lived in the same proportion all throughout the city, then you can redline all you want and you will not disproportionately affect whites, blacks, Hispanics, and Asians. But we don't have that. We have black areas and white areas. And therefore, we find that redlining tends to occur in communities of color. So, that is a way in which, even though uh, people are not intending to be racist, when they redline, it impacts them. And then here's how resident segregation has a negative impact on a person of color, and that's schools. If you have black neighborhoods and Hispanic neighborhoods and Asian neighborhoods, then you can have black schools, Hispanic schools, Asian schools, because a lot of our schools are based on the neighborhood you're in. Now, once again, if our schools are perfectly integrated, what, the differences between, between schools would be a problem, but not a racial problem. But they're not perfectly integrated. And so we can treat the black schools and the Hispanic schools uh, differently than we can the other schools. Perhaps we don't fund them as well. Or perhaps we give them a different emphasis. I myself went to, not to a predominantly black school, but a predominantly Hispanic high school. Not a lot of people from my high school went on to college. I was, I was one of the few ones. And, you know, uh, for whatever reason, my personal story, I wound up in college. A lot of my classmates did not. Schools across the city, the predominantly white schools, a lot of their kids went on, went on to college. They had more of a college prep program. What do we prepare for in our schools? Well, we were great in what's called industrial arts, in, in carpentry, and building homes, things of this nature. A lot of the students in my school went on and they built homes. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's an honorable profession, of course. But we know that in this society, in this day and age, people who get college degrees have more power than people who don't have college degrees. And thus, these Hispanic kids were being channeled into certain occupations they are going to be less powerful than the kids, the white kids, in the predominantly white schools across the way. So it's not just about the money, but it's about the emphasis. And resident segregation makes it possible for discrimination to happen through our school system, through our education system, along racial lines. This is a way in which we have systematic bias that can work against people of color. And it's not intentional. Once again, it's not that people are in some sort of backroom planning on how to hurt people of color is that there is a system now that impacts them in a disproportionate manner. Given our history, given the fact that we have these sort of institutions in place that disproportionately impact people of color, here's the question we have to ask as Christians. We believe in justice, and I'm defining justice as people getting what they deserve. Now we know ultimately we don't want ultimately what we deserve, you know, that's why we've, we've come to Christ. But on this earth, we hope to be as fair as possible. So if we look at justice that way, and we have these systems that make it harder for people of color to get what they deserve, to get justice, what are we as Christians going to do about it? How are we going to adjust our society to be fair to, those pe- to people of color and a fair way for people who are here today, for, for, for whites, for everyone? That is a question that we need to struggle with as Christians and not merely uh, blow off or ignore systematic racism, systematic bias, because we don't see it every day.
2: Hey, this is Ephraim Smith. and. Uh Wow. What a presentation by Dr. George Yancey. Uh, He has been a mentor of mine from afar. I've read a number of his books, and so I'm looking forward into going a little deeper in what he presented. We've got some questions about uh, systemic racism and bias, and I have the pleasure of having a guest co-host today. He is the one, the only church planting subject matter expert. He is a church planting serial entrepreneur. He's a pastor. He's like a think tank of multiplication and exponential. The one and only Peyton Jones. How was that for an introduction? It's good
0: to be here. And I got to say, now that is off my bucket list. Being introduced by Ephraim Smith. If you've never been introduced by Ephraim Smith, you've never been introduced somewhere.
2: Well, man, it is a pleasure to be on here with you and um uh, well, we've got a heavy topic, but an important one so um There's some questions that we're just going to together, you and I are going to try to tackle here, and then we're going to go into the chat. And so I just want to remind people, candid conversations, uh, if this is your first episode of this webinar, welcome. We're so glad you're here. But I would encourage you to go back and watch previous episodes and stick with us because we are having real brother-to-brother on other episodes, brother-to-sister conversations about. Issues that normally divide us, and we're trying to talk about them in a way that unites us, that builds bridges, that gains deeper understanding that we might truly rise as reconcilers in the body of Christ in this moment and not be held captive to the polarization and the division that is in our world right now. So, uh, Peyton, I'm going to hand it over to you. I know you got some questions that you and I are going to try to discuss here.
0: Well, along those same lines, Ephraim, you know, obviously people are polarizing and falling into very familiar trenches, and I think God wants to meet us in the middle. He wants to. He wants us to to come together as the body and talk. And along that line of what you just said, our first question is: Many people think of these terms systemic bias and racism differently. What? What are some helpful definitions of those terms for you? I know Georgie Georgiancy unpacked it beautifully, but how do you understand it, Ephraim?
2: Yes, well, you know, systemic racism and bias, it's, it's, it's taking what can mainly be housed in a person's heart, in a person's mind, because prejudice, bias, racism, uh, even going deeper hatred... Uh, sustained unforgiveness stereotyping. These are things that are housed uh, in uh, sinful human beings. They're housed even in human beings that are Christian that are on the journey of being more and more like Christ daily. And so, uh, because even even as a believer, uh, we die to self, because we die with Christ and we are raised to new life with Christ. We're also on this journey of dying to self on a regular basis. And so, you know, you have to go, if you understand that sin is not just housed in the soul of human beings, but it's housed in systems, institutions, structures, the governments, and we read about that in the Bible, like, like corporate uh, systemic sin, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, even the nation of Israel, they're divided eventually into two nations because of sin, systemic sin. So if you can understand biblically that sin is systemic, that helps you understand systemic racism and systemic bias. That racism and bias is not just something that's in a person's soul, if that's the reality, if that's the case, because everybody's not racist. You know what I mean? But I, but I think it's fair to say we all carry a bias. It's just Absolutely. part of being human, being in a sinful fallen world. And so if you understand that sin is both in the soul and in systems, then that's how you understand systemic bias and racism. It's not just in somebody's heart. It's not just in a mindset someone could have. It's in structures and systems. We talked a little bit about this the last uh, couple weeks with uh, Pastor Albert Tate and Pastor Derwin Gray, and they gave mm-hmm. examples like housing. Uh, I can remember at four years old, my, my mom and dad were looking for a house. We were living in an apartment, and I can remember at four and five years old, I have memories of my mom or dad calling about a house that was for sale setting up a meeting uh, to go look at that house to potentially purchase it uh, and we would get there and the realtor would see that we were African-American mm. and then they would tell my parents the house was not for sale and my mom and dad would say, but the for sale signs right there, and th- th- we just called you 15 minutes ago right? and they would say, I'm sorry, this house is not for sale, that's systemic bias, that's systemic racism. Um, another form is, is racial profiling. Mm. If you're driving in your car, um, this, is, this is a form of individual bias. If you're driving in your car and when you see three white teenagers on a corner, you just kind of look at them and you wait for the light to turn green and you drive off. But if you stop and you see two Hispanic boys on the corner, and you lock your door or you look to see if your door is locked or you see two african american boys talking real loud and you check to make sure your door is locked that's bias when that feeling goes from just an individual in a car into the justice system the system of law enforcement um the 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 corporate system. That's when it becomes systemic bias. It's no longer an individual in a car that feels this way. It's a lawyer that feels this way. It's a police yeah. officer that feels this way. It's, it's a politician that feels this way. It's a CEO of a company that feels this way. That's when it becomes systemic. You
0: know, my nephew is a, I would say, 300 pound. I've never weighed him, but he's like easily four times my size. He's a black man who lives in Los Angeles, just got teacher of the year for working with inner city youth in LA. And his name's Tadise. And I mean, he is one of the smartest people I know on the planet, could do anything that you give him. And so when he fills out an application, right, he's working, working on his PhD right now. Tadis ought to be like a shoe in for any job he applies. You meet him in person, instant charisma. I mean, the guy has charisma off the charts. But he tried an experiment once. He was putting job applications out, filling them out online, Tadis, Tadis, these, zero bytes. He shortened it to TED and got a million phone calls. He went to the next step on a million applications, not a million literally, but um, that right there is, is again, and I don't think those people on the other side, like you said, that bias, you know, they saw the word to dice. They may have even been unconscious of it, but there was a, a, a notable difference. And the first time he ever told me that, I mean, I, I think for most uh, people that, that say, oh, I don't believe it's a thing. There's that saying, uh, the fish is always the last to, to, to recognize the water. And I think for, for most people that aren't perhaps a victim of systemic bias and racism, um, or they're not on, you know, the negative end of these things, maybe we're going to talk next week with Matt Chandler about white privilege. Um, maybe for people that, like myself, who are white, it's harder to notice because I've never had to change the name Peyton on a, a resume or an application when I fill it out.
2: Yeah, um, that that that's a it's a it's a great point, and you know what what I want people to hear is there's a way to acknowledge and um, and understand systemic racism and bias without feeling individually shamed. I mean what what's what's difficult I know we're going to we're going to get to this too so I'm maybe getting ahead of ourselves a little bit here in the conversation but um the the point here is not for people to feel individually shamed or guilt tripped by this reality um it's it's to expose What is what is real? What is true? So that as believers we can be reconcilers and disciple makers and peacemakers and kingdom advancers in the midst of it. You know, I think of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and you know, and and it's why I still believe that uh, nonviolent Christ-centered resistance is still the best form of protest. Uh, It's and. And it's because King wasn't just trying to uh, address systemic racism and bias in order for African-Americans to realize equality in the nation. He also said he wanted a second conversion for the segregationist. He wanted a second conversion even for those that didn't um, support segregation, but they remained silent on the sidelines. He wanted, when they saw the peaceful, nonviolent demonstrations and the violence that the demonstrators experienced, he wanted that to do something so deep in somebody's heart that they would want to join a movement of Christ-centered, nonviolent resistance to injustice. And I, that, that's our same hope in these conversations on this webinar.
0: Absolutely. And I know that, you know, I have this theory that the kingdom of God has always outpaced the church, um, including when Jesus came. There was a very well-established Jewish religion, but it had not advanced with the kingdom. And so I, I tend to look at the kingdom of God as um, a, a lot of what we 're hearing is the kingdom being expressed god 's heart being expressed. These are injustices when it comes to injustice and uh, you know uh, inequality and things like that. You would think that as a church, um, that would be our jam right like smuckers makes jam. this should be our jam right we should We should be for the restoration of all things. And so where we see these things, we ought to acknowledge that maybe the kingdom of God has outpaced the church and these things are being addressed. But one of the things I think has happened is that the the conversation has happened, whether the church was ready to or not, particularly the white church. I've got to think that for churches with, whether it's uh, people from the Hispanic community, the Asian community, the black community, these are conversations that have been happening for a long time time. And so, my next question would be, what are some ways that you're seeing white people engaging this conversation and responding in ways that are helpful versus unhelpful?
2: Well, I think one is, is by um, engaging candid conversations, engaging dialogue with people of different races, different ethnicities, and listening, uh, asking clarifying questions, not being so quick to disagree or to judge or to defend, but just to listen. Um, I, I'm, I'm blessed that there are white brothers and sisters that I'm having conversations uh, with right now that I, what helps me have hope in the midst of Potentially slipping into despair and discouragement and sustained frustration is is conversations where where the dialogue is so authentic and and so um receiving and open that uh you sense uh traction being made progress being made now that doesn't solve the systemic problems. Uh, but at least the conversations relationship to relationship with people of influence could then help and equip people to use their influence to start addressing the systemic issues. So that, that, that gives me hope. I, th- I think what, what slows things down is when people are their first reaction is offense uh, to defend um, I was talking to um, a white brother recently, and I was just saying, hey, you know, why, why do you get upset so quickly when unpacking issues around race and around uh, the history of race in America? And he says, well, because I feel like when, when America is being critiqued or when I feel like America is being uh, put on trial or attacked in some way, in my mind, I feel like I'm being attacked. I feel like I'm being critiqued. I feel like I'm being put on trial. And I'm saying, why do you feel that way? And he's like, you know, I'm not really sure. And, and we had a discussion about it. at the end of the day, look, I'm, I'm glad I live in the United States of America. I love living in the United States of America. Let me be very clear. I love living in a country where I can have deep dish pizza one day and I can have catfish and collard greens and macaroni and cheese the next day. I can have sweet Speaking tea. Of my love
0: language. I'm in you California. Know, day, you got to stop. I can't get that stuff here.
2: Yeah, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I live in Sacramento. So, man, it's, it's it's tough. You got you got to find the right spots, you know, but um I love living in America and at the same time we're going to stand before God one day, and it's not going to be about how great of an American we were. It's going to be how fruitful and faithful were we at disciple-making? At, at, as, how good and faithful, fruitful were we at, at living as citizens of the kingdom of God? We're supposed to live as if we're in a foreign land until such time as we go to meet Jesus or Jesus returns. Like, and 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 the thing about it is, when you're in a country where you have freedom of religion, when you're in a country where you can worship Jesus without fear of being arrested, because there are some things written in, in the founding documents of this nation that that provides freedom to worship Christ, to advance God's kingdom, we can get so comfortable that we forget that our citizenship in the kingdom of God is still supposed to be supreme for us. And, and, and we can become so nationalistic that, uh, that we lose sense of our citizenship in the kingdom of God. I don't know. What do you think about that, Peyton? I mean, am I?
0: Well, am I, 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 mean, I know long... I'm
2: going down a controversial nope. road a little bit when I talk like that.
0: I am 100% with you. You know, what what many of you don't know uh, listening is that I planted in urban Long Beach. And when I was leaving, because I'm a cereal planter, I wanted Ephraim Smith to come take my place. And my neighborhood was 50% black, 30% Hispanic, and 20% white and Asian mix. And we were a parachute drop from Orange County, which is the white curtain, right? Everybody, be there was. They did Orange County Weekly did an article. that said, "Where'd all the black people go?" Like they were looking. Now there were plenty of Asian and uh, Hispanic people in Orange County, but Orange County is really, I mean, it you know, like what George Ansu was talking about with white flight. I mean, it it is the definition of a white flight area. And so when we went into Long Beach, the, um, the, 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 one of the things I had to do to train the core team is I said, look, whatever you were before this, um, if you're a Republican, you're not anymore, right? Paul, Paul had to put aside, he said, I became all things to the Jew. I said, to the Democrat, you're going to have to be as unto the Democrat. Your Republicanism stays behind that white curtain. Uh, we call it the orange curtain. Uh, And that was before Trump. But we said that has to stay uh, behind there. You've got to leave that behind. And look, I didn't care personally what people felt uh, politically. I mean, when I worked with North American Mission Board, all of my black minister friends in the Southern Baptist were Democrats. And all my white minister friends in the Southern Baptist were Republicans. And I remember looking at that going, that means that neither one of these embodies the kingdom of God. I mean, the kingdom of God can never be an earthly kingdom. And as much as the apostles kept trying to talk Jesus into doing it that way, Jesus kept resisting. And I think God is still resisting our urges to make what he has done through the gospel an earthly kingdom. And yet I do believe, like Jesus said, where he said the the mustard seed, it's a small little thing. The gospel in no way looked like it was going to change the Roman Empire. Yeah. And yet he said, over time, that grows into the biggest trees. Even the birds perch in its branches. When I see the eradication of slavery, when I see Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., again, I see the kingdom of God that outpaces the church. Even the world perches in the branches. Even the world understands that racism was wrong. And the church started that revolution. Uh, 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 Colson in his book, The Body, talking about the, the collapse of communism in Eastern Europe. He, uh, even then, he shows the roots of that coming out of the church, and he documents it very well. But again, you'll never hear about that. But of course, when communism fell, even the birds were perching in the branches. So that was a movement of the kingdom of God through the underground church. And, and, and so, my views on that are quite radical, I suppose. Again, like you, I love America. I came from an all-military family. I love this country. Um, but when it comes to the gospel, I, you know, kind of like the offspring said, you got to keep them separated. <laughs>
2: yeah. Well, I, you know, we, we have questions we're, we're having conversation about, but in the chat, oh my gosh. Questions are coming in, so I think we should just go over there and start tackling some of those. We'll see how, how well we can do. So uh, I'll, I'll start with one here. Um, um, it says here is a, it's, it's an earlier question, uh, and this is based on uh, Dr. George Yancey's presentation that he gave uh, before uh, we got into this conversation at the beginning of this episode. It says, which sets of data can I access that show the bias all other things controlled, as uh, Dr. Yancey just mentioned. Is it in the color of law? I need to share it with some white friends and family members who don't believe that that's true. Uh, I would recommend, yes, the book, The Color of Law, is a good book to get some of that data. I would also suggest, uh, if you want to look at uh, data in other issues that show systemic bias and racism, uh, there's a book called The New Jim Crow. By Michelle Alexander, uh, that that's a good book to read. Uh, there's a book called "Divided by Faith" by Michael Emerson and Christian Smith. I, I would get a hold of that book. Um, you know, anything you can get a hold of by Michael Emerson on this topic is is going to be great. But "The Color of Law" is is a good book on this. Uh, like I said, "The New Jim Crow" by Michelle Alexander, uh, the the book. Um, I was just talking about. Oh, uh, divided by faith by Michael Emerson and Christian Smith. Those are good resources. I don't know if you want to add anything to that that question, Peyton.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, um, if you register for the roundtables, you're going to get an incredible resource kit with that. Um, involved in that is over thirty interviews with um, authors like like Ephraim just mentioned. I mean, we are we are meeting with. It's incredible. I spent almost all day yesterday meeting with, um, and I'll, I'll do it after this call as well. I've got more calls coming for the rest of the week. But just meeting with these authors that not only are writing prolific things, but have lived very prolific lives. That's what's coming out of this for me is the things that uh, these authors have lived through and have come through some of the most horrific things. Um, but you know, I, I always think when God takes you through really rough things, he gives you a bit of a, a prophetic burden. I mean, all the prophets went through hell, right? And out of that, they prophesied. And so here are these, like I said, there'll be 30 authors. That's just one of many things. I'm not trying to make this a commercial, um, but just to tell you, it is an incredible kit. And you'll have within that, you'll have a video interview with those authors. You'll have a blog and a sample chapters. So you can actually get your feet wet and taste, you know, what they're, what, you know, pick up what they're laying down.
2: Uh, Another, oh, you take the next question. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, sorry, I'm sleeping on my job here. What would you like to see pastors doing with congregations who are slow to want to admit these problems or push against them as only political things? And Ephraim, before we answer that, I got to say they added a note. Thankfully, I live in the South with sweet tea. McDonald's gives sweet tea for 99 cents, any size. So we're good on that front.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, but I would say living in California, I know two things are true. California needs more Jesus and more sweet tea. So those things I know are true. There's, there's some other things I'm still trying to figure out are, are true, but more Jesus, more sweet tea. We
0: have um, two um, Cracker Barrels just opened up, Lancaster.
2: You know, we just have one that opened up in Sacramento about a year ago. So, there's hope. Okay, so see, look, look God, God is able. Won't he do it? Do it, won't he? <laughs> So, uh, you, you, you want to give your thoughts on that question first? What would you <laughs> i would like think to see it, pastors doing?
0: I, I think the first step is what um, Ephraim already said, because I was here. I mean, here we were, like I said, a, a white parachute drop into an urban context. I mean, we were downtown Long Beach. And I, the first thing I had to say is, you know, I've been a missionary overseas in Europe for 12 years. I don't have the first clue about what to do here. And so I think even on this topic, to 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 take James's admonition, to be slow to to speak, quick to listen, and slow to become angry, to admit, even even to admit publicly, you don't have to have the answers, but to say that you're seeking after God's heart on this and to start from a place of humility is going to say more than anything else you can possibly do and so if if i were leading a a a church right now i remember even when uh ferguson broke out and i was um pastoring in long beach and i looked out into the audience and you know half my church was was black and i i just remember looking out and thinking man i don't even know what to say and i prayed into the pain Um, That Sunday morning, and I have never, ever, and I've been in ministry 20-something years. I'm old, but I've never had people get to their feet afterwards and clap after praying. And I I felt that day, like, again, that was almost like a prophetic, like God's heart was coming through. I think that's a starting place is no matter who you are or where you're at, to to tell your congregation, we're going to seek God's heart on this. You can't go wrong with that.
2: Yeah. Uh, you know, this question is actually connected to another question that we have up here by our good friend Warren Bird, where he says, my wow. church experience is that we attempt to avoid preaching politics. How can we promote change in systemic racism bias without standing with one part of another? Um, well, I think that there's definitely a way to get beyond partisan politics and talk about systemic bias, systemic racism, systemic injustice. So here's one. So um, uh, a few years ago, and again, I don't know about hard data on this, but but I've read this in a couple of books. I I heard this in some panel discussions that um, there is a connection between Young people being incarcerated and being below grade level in math and reading as early as the third grade. So basically, from that, if you're below grade level in math and reading uh, between the third and fifth grade, there is a and you're in an under-resourced public school system. It, it, you're black and brown. There, there's, a, there's a high po- probability you could be incarcerated at some point. If you're at grade level in math and reading between the third and fifth grade, and you're black or brown, you're in an, an, an under-resourced, you know, let's say urban school, public school system, if, if you're at grade level between, in math and reading at that point in life, there's a great probability you're going to go to college. Now, how do you tackle that without being partisan? You adopt an elementary school in an under resourced community and you provide tutors to all the kids that are below grade level in math and reading in the third grade. And all of a sudden, you are living out biblical justice. You are caring about the most vulnerable among you. Because that's really the call to justice in the Bible that God cares about. God hears the cries. God addresses the, the needs of the most vulnerable around us. Now, in, in the scripture, it gets more specific of who are the most vulnerable around us. The foreigner, the widow, the orphan, the fatherless, the sick, the hungry, the thirsty, the naked, the incarcerated, So whether you're looking at scriptures in Exodus, in Deuteronomy, in Leviticus, in Isaiah, in in Micah, uh, in Jeremiah, whether you're looking at Matthew 25, whether you're looking at scriptures uh, in in James in the New Testament, uh, the letters of Paul, you can't escape that God calls the people that God is in covenant with Then later, God calls the people that are followers of Christ to tend to, to care about, to address the issues systemically of the most vulnerable around us. So if you adopt a school in an under-resourced community and you're getting third grade, I'm just going to assume every adult in a church can read and do math at the third grade level. So I'm just going to assume that for a minute. That, that the high probability, I don't care if you're a small church, medium church, multi-site church, regardless of that, I just, I'm going to assume the adults in your church can read at the third grade level. If you can do that, you can dismantle the pipeline between under-resourced communities in prison, and you didn't say anything about the Republican or Democratic Party.
0: That's so good, man. That's so good. I love that. So if we're, if we're looking at the um, conversations about racism and bias, you, you kind of partially answered um, some of this next question, which I appreciate the honesty behind it. Conversations about racism and bias between white Christians, and black brown Christians is a blessing and learning opportunity for the white people in the group. But what's in it for the people of color? And I think you just hinted on that. For, for to a certain degree. Um, what other thoughts do you have on that?
2: Well, I mean, what's in it for people of color is the journey of reconciliation. Uh, though, I, I can say to you, um, every time I have to rehash a personal story um, about how I've experienced systemic racism and systemic bias, which I have, uh, every time I have to tell that story again, almost feeling like I have to prove to some of my brothers and sisters that systemic racism and systemic bias is real. Because I understand there's a segment of the body of Christ where where there are pastors, there are uh, theologians, there, there are, are Christian teachers that are, are teaching that systemic bias, systemic racism is not real. Um, that um, they're they're saying that if if people use the term systemic racism or systemic bias, that they're talking about Marxism, that they're talking about socialism. So that's not in the question, but let me just address that real fast. So um, there is a difference between an analysis of systemic injustice and solutions for how you deal with systemic uh, injustice. So, analyzing, um, pointing out that systemic injustice exists is not in and of itself Marxism or socialism. It, it's when you get to the solutions. It's when you get—now, some people believe that just by naming a group as an oppressed group and naming a group as a privileged group, that in and of itself makes you Marxist. Well, if that's the case, then James is Marxist, and Paul is Marxist, and Jesus is Marxist, which is that that's ludicrous to believe something like that but the Bible is Marxist. That's crazy to say something like that because way before Marxism existed, systemic injustice existed. What do you mean? How do you describe the Israelites in slavery in Egypt in the book of Exodus? I think that's systemic injustice. I think that's systemic oppression. Uh, How do you describe the Assyrians the Babylonians, uh, the taking the Israelites into exile, destroying their communities. Now, you can argue, well, why did it happen? Yes, because of the idolatry and the systemic injustice that the Israelites themselves were perpetuating against the most vulnerable. That's why God has to talk to the Israelites about bribes that bribes are wrong. Extortion is wrong. Well, he had to be talking to privileged wealthy people because poor people can't bribe anybody. Poor people can't extort. (laughs) But oppressed people don't have the power to do extortion. I mean, well, I guess to a a degree. I mean, I've, I've read stories about people that are poor. You know, a poor person has an affair with a rich person, and then they say, if you don't give me money, I'm going to tell somebody. Well, if you don't have, if you're, if you're really poor, you don't even have the relationships or the access to tell anybody anything.
0: That's a good point. You know, uh, to answer that question, uh, you know, and, and again, uh, it's hard for me as a white guy to answer this question of what's in it for people of color. And I understand the irony behind that. And yet, you know, my mind goes back to John 17, where it's the fulfillment of Christ's heart for his church. So if you say, well, what's in it for me as a person of color? Um, you're, you're fulfilling God's purposes that he prayed to the Father for, for uh, the great collaboration. What we're, I'll say this we don't believe that we can, as exponential, accomplish a mission of the Great Commission. That's our mission. We are focused on the Great Commission. Churches multiplying outwards, saturating the world with the gospel. But what we've come to understand is to reach every tongue, tribe, and nation, it will take every tongue, tribe, and nation. I've been working with church planners for a couple decades now. And having worked, you know, specifically, this is, this is one of the, the, the very practical ways to answer this question. When we replaced, I was over the Western U S and Western Canada for the training of church planners for the Southern Baptist. So uh, through NAM, North American Mission Board. But w- we knew when I was coming off, like it was ironic that here I am over the Western U S and I don't speak Spanish. So it was a no brainer that to change things, my replacement had to be a Hispanic church planner who could connect with all of the untouched, untrained, um, you know, I mean, there, there was, we were not training the Hispanic community. And the Hispanic community, here, here's the irony. The reason we actually needed to bring them in was to learn from them because there's that sense in which, for me, I am very atypical of how I think about church planning. I don't think like the party line. Um, Sean Banesh just wrote a, an article on how a lot of the stuff you hear about church planning is like listening to boy bands. You know, it may be popular, but it's not very good music. Sorry if you like boy bands. But what, what the Hispanic community, with the way that they church plant, I kept finding when I was working with them, man, that's the stuff that I train planners to do, and it's not popular, but it's so first century, it's so missional, it's so punk rock that this, sorry, I use that term loosely, um, Cobra Kai never died, right? In that sense, right? It was bad to the bone, but it, 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 it was like we have to bring in the Hispanic community, not just to, to give them the resources that, that the white church has, but to take their knowledge and have that saturate the white church, because a white church needs the Hispanic church probably more than we could say the Hispanic church needs the white church. And I think Jesus, when he prayed that, John 17, what, what he was actually saying is we're better together, like, like Dave Ferguson kept saying. And then one, one of the things that I read from history, um, I've got a little book here on systemic uh, uh, racism and and really racial reconciliation in the kingdom. And I was just flipping through that. And I read a story about Count Zinzendorf, who uh, headed one of the greatest missionary movements um, the world's ever seen called the Moravians. And when he saw the plight of the slave trade in the Caribbean, he saw what people were going through. He added that to his list of missions. He was like, we can't ignore what's happening in the world of slavery. Like that was way ahead of its time, right? Um, so what, what and, and this is mind blowing. I don't, I don't know if you knew this Ephraim. Two of his Moravians sold themselves as slaves so that they could get to that island, have access to slaves, and thousands of slaves were converted. And and I've just got to think out of these couple examples that, that we've given right now about what's in it, it. There's something in it for all of us. And I don't think any of us knows the answer, but I think time will tell and heaven will celebrate when every tongue, tribe, and nation has reached every tongue, tribe, and nation? I think, I think that's our job, really, is to find out <laughs> the answer to that question, if that makes yes. sense.
2: <clears throat> yes. Um, and I, I just think even in the example that you used about um, the, the Moravian movement, it, that, that example, um, there is a connection biblically between reconciliation disciple-making, and disrupting the empire systems and governments of this world. And we see that with Jesus, and we see that in the book of Acts. I mean, there's a reason that followers of Christ were arrested and persecuted for doing it. If if there was no threat to the systems of this world— We would just read in the Bible about disciple-making and church planting and, you know, people coming to Christ, people being baptized, and you would read nothing about the persecution. So you go, why the persecution? Is it just because the devil? Is it just because Satan? Well, I mean, you know, there there are evil spirits and powers behind earthly powers and governments. I mean, that's one way to look at things. But I'm just saying, advancing the kingdom of God. Making disciples is more radical and more revolutionary than we've made it at times in the United States of America. Disciple making, advancing the kingdom, planting churches, preaching the unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ is a threat to the power structures of this world because the church is supposed to represent the kingdom of God not be a reflection of the commodifying institutions of the land in which we are being the church. Amen. Okay. That probably was too deep. That, we're supposed to no, be having a candid conversation. Good. And I, I don't, I don't know if I should have said all that, but the, I think well, you These are candid
0: mind. conversations. So we're good.
2: And so I get concerned when the church is a reflection of the other institutions that surround it. Government institutions, corporate institutions, entertainment institutions, when we reflect too much the societal domains, the, the, the sectors, even of a great country like the United States of America, when the church is more a, a, a reflection of those, those sectors than it is a, a revolution of the kingdom of God. Uh, that's where I get concerned because if the church is true to the mission that the church has been given in the Bible, we will see some systemic change. Will we see full systemic change? No, because we won't see, we won't realize full systemic change until there's a new heaven and a new earth. But until then, the church, if it's, if it's really living out its mission, you'll see some picture of systemic change in the neighborhoods, in the cities, in the towns where those churches are located.
0: You know, back in my theology pants days, I used to um, lecture Old Testament when I was a missionary in the UK. And when we got to the major prophets, like it was unreal to me how much that God addressed systemic racism, injustice, like he talks about how you treat the foreigner among you, yada, yada. That's hardwired into the law. There was so much about how the marginalized were treated, how the poor were treated. There was so much social justice in the prophets. Like you would have thought they were just like, hey, idolatry, we're going to talk about that. But it was all, everything we're talking about was on God's heart. And, and the way that they had systematized injustice was a symptom of how they had departed from him. And so I, I love how you just said that. And I, and I guess I'm coming, you know, maybe from the, the negative with, with the Old Testament on that one. But um, one, one of the, the questions we have, and I, and I really like it, it says for Ephraim, I love that. So it says, does the church need reconciliation or conciliation? And how do you view both of those things?
2: Well, um, conciliation without reconciliation can just be reduced to trying to help two groups um, come to an understanding, come to a resolve. Like you can have two people in, in court. You can have arbitration. And that's kind of a version of conciliation. Now that, that, that doesn't mean that people will ever forgive each other, that they'll ever like each other, that things will be mended. It's just that they come to an agreement. Okay, we're in a dispute and we need to resolve the dispute, conciliation. We, we, we need to come to some kind of agreement. Okay, you get the house, I get the cars. You know, so conciliation could just be that conciliation could just be, you know, OK, uh, I'm not angry with you anymore. I'm not going to hang out with you, but I'm not mad at you. I think the bar of reconciliation is higher. Um, because th- that reconciliation assumes repentance. It assumes. It assumes. Uh, it, it, it assumes forgiveness, some, some form of restoration. Because it, being reconciled to God, this, this is a good theological point, conciliation would just mean I accept Jesus so that God's not mad at me anymore. So I accept Jesus so that I'm not the object of God's wrath. Conciliation. Reconciliation, I think, is deeper because I go, no, I accept Jesus Christ so I can experience intimacy with God. So I can experience that God has loved me all along, that God has been passionately, deliberately pursuing me through his son, Christ Jesus. And through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, I experience this radical love. And then out of the overflow of that, I have right relationship with my brother, Peyton. So uh, Peyton is not just white, and I'm just black but we but through reconciliation we are brothers we are family we are united we are restored and we're on a journey of right relationship with one another that goes beyond just our individual relationships to something that invades systems that that's why I, I'm not against conciliation. I think conciliation is good. I just think reconciliation is more radical. I think it's. I think it's. I don't see conciliation in the Bible, but I see reconciliation in the Bible.
0: I agree. And, you know, just to kind of bring this conversation to a close, first off, I want to thank you for joining us. Don't go anywhere just yet. Um, just to, to give a, a maybe a piggyback thought on that is that, you know, during this month of September, we're in Rosh Hashanah in the Jewish calendar, which is a time where they stop and remember uh, not their individual sins. I mean, we're so into our individual sins, but for a Jew... You read the book of 1st, 2nd Chronicles, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Samuel. You were meant to repent on behalf of the sins of your entire nation. So it's not unusual for us as Christians to maybe in the spirit of Rosh Hashanah. Here we are in September. I mean, Paul says, if you want to observe those feasts, cool. If you don't want to, cool. But here's the reality. This is a part of our tradition that you repent, for what everybody has done. Daniel reads the scroll of Jeremiah and he gets on his face. That dude was upright, but he got on his face and he repented because of what his ancestors did that led them to Babylon. And Daniel was the guy that we hold up as the one who sought God with all his heart. There was no one like Daniel, he stood alone, yet he repented for the sins of his ancestors. Maybe it's time for us in the church to repent for the sins of our ancestors, of our fathers, and to acknowledge it. And perhaps doing that would be more in the spirit of, shoot, man, what our faith has done for thousands of years till we got on the scene. Well, hey, guys, look, I want to thank you for joining us. But before you go, I want to tell you real quick uh, about our roundtables. Now, if you enjoyed this conversation, this is just a pre, kind of like an appetizer, if you will, an apetarif. What we're going to start doing is meeting. Rather than our six regional conferences for the fall, we've decided to take it to the local of the Level Church. Grassroots, 100 roundtables in 100 different cities. And what's going to happen is you're going to have rounds where you're going to interact like you've had a chance to interact with us, but it's more up close and personal. Now, through September 15th, you don't have long, you've got less than a week, you can order $29. You get that resource kit we talked about. You get hundreds of videos. Not, I mean, this thing is amazing. You get 2 Uh, books that you've never seen before that are on these topics all about reconciliation. And we want to invite you to go over to multiplication.org and register for the roundtables today while you can still get. And that'll give you access to the roundtable. If you can't make it in the flesh, you can watch it online. But you get to go to these roundtables. You can go to the website, check out where they were, and you'll get all of these resources, including all of these videos that you've watched, whether you're here for the first time today, or you came in and you're like, hey, You know, I I, want to see what I miss so far. We've had, um, so far, Albert Tate. We've had Miles McPherson. We have had an amazing stellar lineup. Like I said, next week, we'll be with Matt Chandler speaking about white privilege. So I want to thank you on behalf of Exponential for joining us. I want to thank the legendary Ephraim Smith, the funnest co-host on the planet. And uh, anyways, next week, Todd Wilson will be here with Grant Skeldon to interview Matt Chandler. And we'll see you next week. This fall, Exponential is hosting roundtable events in cities all across America. These half-day gatherings in smaller settings will allow church leaders to prioritize peer-to-peer conversations and receive practical training on how to prepare their church to lead for racial reconciliation. Exponential roundtables will help you continue to pursue church multiplication in these challenging times. Find a roundtable near you this fall by visiting multiplication.org.